good evening wherever you are, and thanks for clicking on the Just Like the Movies podcast. Leading off, as always, I'm Mike, and I'm about to hand it over to frequent Nick Manning stand-in, Johnny, to talk about a movie that he picked for us, which is 1988's uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So, John, I would love to know a little bit more about you know what your motivation was to pick this movie and so, kind of your opening thoughts about your memories with it, you know, your first time seeing it, whatever you remember. Yeah, Nick Manning, uh, big fan of The Dip, as far as I uh, recall. Um, but uh, interesting, interesting uh, metaphor. I, I appreciate that. I don't know. But yeah, dude, Roger Rabbit. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Um, 1988, Robert Zemeckis, Under the Spielberg Umbrella, just one of those just like 80s power productions uh, that was kind of one, uh, set the bar in a way on its own and kind of was its own own thing. And it's 33 years old. And boy, Mike, did this movie for me, I expected that it would, but boy, does this movie hold up in a way that I was so happy because I, you know, I hadn't seen it in at least 10 years, maybe 15 years. And I was thinking going in, like, man, am I going to watch this and be like, wow, those seeing those two characters interact really doesn't feel like they're interacting, whether it's Eddie and Roger or uh, any animated um, 2D drawing mixed up uh, with a human. But boy, does it just hold well. Mm. Uh, and, and maybe we can get into guessing as to why. You know, we're not VF, VFX experts, but just a really enjoyable movie, a, a nice, fun watch. And it really triggered a lot of memories for me, too. Like seeing the movie in theater, knowing exactly what movie theater I saw it in, what the theater smelled like, having the toys, there was a video game, wanting to do impressions of Roger Rabbit, uh, realizing that I was definitely attracted to women. Uh, <laughs> just, just a lot of things that happened that this movie did to me, and I'll never be able to thank it enough. <laughs> Yeah, so where did you see the movie? You, you, so you saw it in the theater with your family, I take it? Yeah, we saw it in a the theater in um, Babylon, um, where, where um, a couple towns over, well, one town over from where I grew up, on, on Long Island. And uh, yeah, it was um, just, you know, one of those, it wasn't a multiplex, they didn't really have those around back then, I don't think. But it was one of those, like, four theater theaters, and uh, very you know, stock type of place, but it was the, it was your local theater. And it was just, uh, I remember being so excited to see it. And I also remember the beginning of the movie, that little short uh, between Baby Herman and Roger Rabbit. For some reason in my mind, I thought it was a short before the movie. And then, you know, in the rewatch, I'm like, oh yeah, it was part of the movie. And that's kind of what kicks it off and like really wows people by saying, whoa, there's a human and this is going on. Um, so it, ta- it like starts you in a very Looney Tunes situation and then pulls you right into that world, that magical world where they're blending the animation with the acting. And I absolutely love it. Love that. I remember seeing it with my family, too, in the theater. And then I remember, you know, getting the VHS and bringing it home. And we watched it a lot because I remember mm-hmm. sometimes my brothers and I would just like quote it apropos of nothing like i remember we'd be watching another movie and there'd be like a car chase and i would just be like i'm gonna ram them (laughs) (laughs) and they had like but you know looking back at the movie like when i watched it this time i'm i'm not as up on it as you were i was definitely very entertained by it but i could see why it was like this movie was made for kids and it was like i remember really liking cartoons back then and if you really like cartoons then you like the kind of antics that they were very 
that they were very successful in replicating and oh, yeah. uh very violent it, yeah a little yeah a little violent they had you know they, they kind of uh you know they had they had uh, a real life acme you know it, from the you know, the the coyote and roadrunner skits it's like all the products were acme products like oh that's that's the acme guy right and um i i just uh, i don't remember i i was trying to look into it i i, I it sounds like you're a little more hooked into this one than me because i i know they made toys but i don't think we had them i remember seeing them at the, at the toy store i definitely don't remember the video game at all um, yeah the video game again one of those games for nintendo that I didn't get far in, but I got further than like I did with like the Ninja Turtles game and that sort of thing. But they definitely had a scene, and for some reason, I always loved the um, scene, the the level in video games based on movies where you got to drive the car. Mm-hmm. So whether that was the Batman games, the Ghostbusters games, and Roger Rabbit, when you got to drive, um, what's his name, the cat, the taxi, Benny, Benny, uh, a, that's a big part of uh, the game and the allure. I remember that pretty well but so you um you said you and your brothers would do a lot of the quotes and stuff did you have um was it always like the deep cut stuff like what the weasels were doing or did you have uh, did you have other go-to quotes that were bigger like obviously one of the bigger quotes of the movie is done by jessica rabbit where she said you know i'm not bad i'm just drawn that way no and that's kind of one of those quotes that has lived on forever are there other quotes that stood out to you or that you maybe have carried with you over the no, years no i just remember that one because it was like it always worked because we watched so many action movies in my household <laughs> as we've covered so we watched a lot of movies with car chases and then like somebody <laughs> would just be like i'm gonna ram them <laughs> that's amazing yeah. that's so good <laughs> the um <clears throat> you know as far as this movie goes i th- it's just so deep with all the references to that era and there's there's so much going on like i mean we could probably spend way too much time talking about all the various references and stuff but really i mean oh, what, yeah i was trying to think too because i i don't know when the last time i saw this movie was it was probably before i was in high school because i think by then wow okay because you know it's like you i, I was just thinking back because i can't really remember to be honest but it's it's like you kind of outgrew it but it was like you still remember what it was and you remember like having a great time watching it but now it's like you've kind of moved on to other things and um you know with this one it was just like uh you know, you just it just takes you all the way back to just watching cartoons when you were a kid and like eating junk food, and like just really enjoying all. Well, maybe that's just me, but <laughs> stuff, having no bills. Yeah, I get it. Stuff in my face with cake while I'm watching Looney Tunes. Just zero stuff. worry about gaining weight or having diabetes or anything. Just give me all the cake. I get it, dude. Trust me. I get it. But um, you know, this movie. Like I was watching this movie. One of the things that stood out to me was i was just thinking it's like man they got all these characters from all these different properties and they're yeah. all combined in one thing and it's like they can't even get it took 20 years to get spider-man in a movie with the other avengers they still can't use the x-men really that's uh, a great point and it was yeah. all basically i couldn't get a lot of detail about it but it was basically all steven spielberg it was just it was all done as like a gentleman's agreement that it, it's you know if if um <clears throat> Warner Brothers lent the characters to Disney and they had creative input about how they were used and how they were portrayed. And there's all these silly things. Like when they have the scene with uh, Daffy Duck and Donald Duck and they're doing the piano show at the uh, nightclub. Um, right. It's... Um, that w- There was a whole discussion about how they had to appear equal. One character couldn't appear better than the other. It, yeah. It, you know, so it was probably managing a lot of that stuff. But I can't even imagine... 
anything like that today because and from what i read it was all him he was like the driving force behind it and then the the gentleman's agreement was at some point warner brothers was going to want to make a movie kind of like it and they they would want to use disney characters but by the time they got around to it which i think was space jam they uh disney had a completely new management structure and they just reneged on it so that's yeah space jams that's a good point because that was about eight years after i want to say something mm-hmm. like that um and yeah you can't compare in my opinion you can't even hold space jam anywhere near uh who framed roger rabbit what but about yeah. what about cool world though yeah i that's funny you mentioned that because i i've seen cool world like but it was like one time and maybe 20 jeez over 20 years ago mm-hmm yeah, yeah and I, I don't I don't remember it very well. Uh, was it Brad Pitt's in that? Right, Brad Pitt is in it. Gabriel Byrne and then Kim Basinger because she plays a Kim car- Basinger. She plays yeah. a cartoon character who turns real halfway through the movie. And well, I mean that's one thing about this movie. It was such a. It was you. You probably did some reading about this too, but it was it went way over budget and uh, Disney it was, was the most gonna, expensive of all, of all time at the at that time right? in the eighties. Yeah, it was the high. Yeah. It was a, it, it was rumored to be a seventy million dollar budget, which. Uh, I don't know. How, I can't. How's my inflation calculator in my head? I don't know. I would guess that's probably about 160 to 220 million dollars in today's money. Close. I think mm. it's a just around double. Yeah. I think it'd be like a, around 150. Mm. Made it. Made a lot of money too. It, well, yeah, it did. It was a gamble that paid off because the the studio was going to pull the plug on it, and then it ended up doing. I think it made 350 million combined. Yeah, well, 329. You're right there, buddy. Uh, nah. <laughs> You're right there, uh, yeah. right? Oh, that you've t- you popped it on top of your head. Um, but uh, yeah, and also won four Oscars, I believe, all in the technical category. But still, because of you know, like you were saying, the job they did combining actors and oh man, and and the cartoons, and that all came from. I think how they did it was they do you do you know how they did it? I, I didn't do as much research on this, but I remember seeing making of documentaries of it. And there was a lot of Bob Hoskins do, had to do a lot of green screen acting and um, just eye level positioning using um, like broom handles, and they'd be like, "This is where mm-hmm. Roger's eyes are," that sort of thing. And there were also some stand-ins, uh, that sort of thing. And they but they used a lot of remotes and stuff with the floors to make things move around. So when there's a waiter who's a cartoon holding a real tray or moving a real chair, they were filming it and having those all those objects actually moving and then putting the animated characters overlay on top of that. I don't know how much more you understand of what they did? Because, I mean, I'll admit, I didn't dive too, too far into the making No, I was just going to go a little that. bigger on it with the fact that they basically shot all the live-action stuff in five or six months, and then the animators spent... It was at least twice that amount of time. I think it was a year, maybe 14 months, and they did 82,000 frames of animation or something like that. And so that resulted in any... T- it, it was like, okay, we can't alter any scenes, because if we alter a scene, we have to lose it. Like they were gonna That's do. A, they were gonna do a scene where Eddie Valiant was gonna tu- like he was gonna turn into a cartoon when they went to Toontown, and then they, but then they had to scrap Ooh. the whole thing. I wouldn't have liked that. You wouldn't have liked that. I don't think so. I like the idea that he had that redemption because he hated tunes because a tune killed his brother, and then he kind of came around to them at the end. If he became a tune, it would have been. Little, little too toony. Yeah, that's that's a good observation, and and, and uh, you know, as far as the uh, the two the tunes go, I mean, what did you have any thoughts about how they were portrayed in the movie and how they were, how they uh, how they presented this world where just it's just a casual thing that 
humans and cartoons live side by side. I yeah, I mean, I always like that, and I I watch. It's hard for me to escape the prism in which I watched this movie, in which was as a five year old or six year old, mm-hmm. um, and really wishing that that existed. And the closest <laughs> I got, which may influence my answer to your question, is at MGM Studios. Um, we my family went on a Disney World trip in spring of 1990, and my brother was not even one. And I mean, it's so stupid of my parents to have done that. Like, who brings a five month old to Disney World? But I'm glad they did, though. You know, I know multiple um, people have done it. <laughs> but they they had a section created uh, based on um, an Acme warehouse, very reminiscent of the end of the movie, and they had the steamroller. And they had footprints of, like, white footprints on the ground. Like, there was Roger's uh, footprints. And you could, like, kind of live in and explore what it was like. And there were, like, you know, um, uh, cartoons on the wall, but also, like, physical models of the cartoons. And you got to, like, experience it. And I remember just really enjoying that and suspending my disbelief having seen the movie. Um, So it's just really enjoyable. And it's, it's fun. And, yeah, I think also because it's still, to me holds up really well. I think the reason that is, is because if this was CGI in a way, and they use computer graphics to animate the characters, it wouldn't have aged as well. And I know some people will argue that, but I think there's something about the physical animation applied that is still a very tangible thing. And um, while there is some imperfections and stuff in the way the characters move and that sort of thing, it's not as fluid as maybe you could do with a modern CG. It still makes them feel more contextually real than if it was a very polished and clean CG, um, like, like even a Jar Jar Binks or something like that. Well, yeah, and it's you don't have the uncanny valley problem. They're not supposed to look like humans. They're yes. supposed to look like a completely separate thing that's impervious to pain and almost unkillable. Right. And um, yeah, yeah. The, the the thing I didn't catch, you know, I think a mo- like most people wouldn't because it is the current year. And we constantly have to look at the political and um, the, the political implications of things was how they kind of portrayed the tunes as they were segregated. They were in their own they were in their own section of town. They kind of had their own laws. They, they had their own uh, police force and all this stuff. They were kind of like a like a like a, almost like a I don't know, like a like an like a enclave, an ethnic enclave, an ethnic pocket, something like that. And then they also did it when he went to the ink and paint club. And that was a reference to the famous Cotton Club in Harlem where all the entertainment was was black, but they couldn't come in as guests. Oh, so wow. All, hmm. So you've got all these cartoons. You know, the, the tunes are all, most of them by nature, entertainers. They're there to, that they've, they've all fallen to that kind of work. That's something they don't really get into in the movie. The only tunes who have jobs that don't involve entertaining human beings are like the weasels that you see a lot on screen and they're like they're yeah. judge dooms little lackeys right um, right or like the security guard or like uh yeah a waiter or something yeah, yeah. that's a good po- that's a good point man i didn't really think about that and it takes place in the 1940s um uh pre a lot of um uh all of that civil rights and that happened throughout the 50s and more importantly into the 1960s so they're 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 positioning it in that time frame um to maybe shed light on that in a way where kids can understand it better or something yeah on on a lighter note i I liked how they integrated the tunes into daily life like they played it straight when when uh uh dolores 
uh, Joanna Cassidy's character is talking about how she's like, a toon killed his brother, dropped a piano on his head. And she's like all sad about it because it's like that's something that car- that that toons would do to each other all the time. But if you <laughs> right. do it to a human, it's gonna kill him. Right. Yeah. And that- <laughs> yeah. And also how um, just jealous she gets of Jessica Rabbit, and it's like toons are. Uh, on the level of humans there where like she could conceptualize the idea of her lover leaving her for a cartoon and that's pretty funny in itself yeah yeah and it's uh jessica rabbit as you mentioned making five six seven eight year olds the world over thinking may maybe girls don't have cooties 100 percent, dude i remember i don't know if it was it was either jessica rabbit or Susanna hoffs from the bangles who made me realize that i liked women um and it's i mean she's sexy i don't know what to say i don't without being weird about it and there's a reason why girls who like to you know do the slutty thing for halloween uh i don't think that's me crossing a line and saying that because i think some of the costumes are literally called like slutty kitten and stuff yeah yeah, slutty nurse slutty Slutty nurse yeah so there's a reason why a lot of girls to this day still do the jessica rabbit thing and you know so uh, it's it's a it's a real thing, and kids growing up watching that movie at the time were probably like, "Wow." <laughs> How about my that? personal favorite, slutty prison guard. I like that one. I'll have to look that one up. I may look that up. I, I just made that up. I don't even know if that's real. Well, we're gonna is. find we're gonna find out. So, Mike, <laughs> um, you off the heels of um, our uh, pu- the Pulp Fiction podcast we did when we were like riffing back and forth, and you upstaged me with a way better Ving Rhames impression than me. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> a lot of people got a kick out of that. So um, we don't really talk before that we do the podcast. But one thing that you did briefly touch on is that you said you tried to dabble in some impressions. So I'm dying to oh, know what you no, tried to get I into. so it had to do with alternate casting choices for the movie. Um, and there were a ton of them, but the main one for Judge Doom was that Christopher Lee turned down the part. And, oh, I read, yes, I read. Yeah, that. and I was just thinking about, like, what a Judge Doom line would sound like if Christopher Lee was saying it. And then I was like, works, I, I was like, I was like, I tried it out when I was testing my microphone, and I, it sounded like, it kind of sounded like Stewie doing a Ving Rhames impression. So I don't really want to do it. <laughs> you got to um, do it. You got to try it. Uh, hang on. Uh, shave and a haircut. Two bits. <laughs> That's awful. Um, yeah, because I, I was into the... Um, that was almost that was, almost sounded like Peter Steele a little bit. Yeah, it, well, come on, man. You know, my range is limited. Uh, <laughs> shave and a haircut. <laughs> Two bits. <laughs> well, I tried to make it a little British. That's why I can't. But I don't yeah. even think that and worked. For the record, Mike, there is prison guard Halloween costumes, but they're called sexy prison guard. Mm. Yeah. Sexy yeah. prison guard and Hubie Guilty. Six-piece <laughs> men's costume and women's. That just uh, doesn't do it for me as much. And because of some of the Google results, my MacBook now has a terminal virus. So thank you. <laughs> So, did, were you aware of how this how this movie was adapted? What the what the source material was, or anything like that? Yeah, who censored Roger Rabbit? The yeah, book. did you did, talk I, about that a little bit? I I'm not going to sit here and tell you I knew that that was a thing until we started getting ready for this podcast. But I did read the the synopsis of it, and the idea is more on the focus of uh, really Roger Rabbit being the one that gets killed, and mm-hmm. because he was a um, not as talented enough to be hired and, and, and for, for 
acting and, and appearing in, in strips. I mean, his comic strips and and that sort of thing. So it, it's just I'll, I'll say this. You know, it's in a mystery novel, and and I get that. And they I guess liked some things about it, so that they adapted it for that reason. But I. Robert Zemeckis, like the the team, if you look at the team that went into making this movie happen, the writers are the least impressive in terms of career. Okay. They haven't, they didn't really do a lot before this or after this. Uh, Maybe their biggest acclaim would be the Grinch movie or something. But yeah, Robert Zemeckis, like the king coming out off of the heels of the uh, Back to the Future and his resume speaks for itself. Then you got the studios you have touchstone working with amblin which is steven spielberg's production company distributed by disney in buena vista i mean you got frank marshall uh one of the greatest producers of all time husband of kathleen kennedy um producing this thing with robert uh watts and so just like they could have taken any source material and made a, a knockout out of it and they did it well, it was it was a it was a novel that was written in 1981, and I I believe they were trying to they optioned it almost immediately, and they wanted um, they started working on it as early as 1982. But it was a pretty big departure from the from the novel because you're right, it was more of a focus on Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit actually gets killed, right? And then they're not cartoons; they're comic strip characters, right? And they have some weird abilities that they don't get into in the movie. And, you know, this is one of those things where a film really streamlines the source material and it a lot of the changes were for the better. So if you read the synopsis of the book, it's called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? I, I haven't read it in its entirety. I'm sure it's a good book in its own right. It was good enough to inspire a movie. But that's really all it did. I mean, they didn't do a whole lot with it. Like, Judge Doom wasn't even in the book. They, right. They, right. The Judge Doom character, who I think is such a big part of the, like, what makes the movie fun... Um, he yeah. just, he wasn't even involved. And then this was a movie. T- you mentioned the writers. Uh, they basically just kind of took an unpublished um, sequel to Chinatown and just kind of made that the main th- plot line that governs the whole thing. Oh, that, I can was, see that because this does have the Chinatown vibes to it. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it takes place in Los Angeles. It's about the manipulation of a utility. Yeah. Uh, which, which, as we know, actually happened. That's another thing you don't know about the movie when you're a kid because you just don't know these things. And but that's or know, care Los, when you're a kid. Yeah. yeah, you don't give a rat's ass. Yeah, you don't give. You don't care that Los Angeles is a smog-covered hellscape of urban sprawl. It's just like it's just like gridlock twelve like, hours a day. Yeah, it's like listen, listen, Timmy. Um, so <laughs> just so you understand this, the bad guy wants to build a highway. To sell cars. And you're just like, I want to see the rabbit. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really what happened. It was that they had a free <clears throat> monorail or street rail that took people any, almost anywhere they wanted to go. It actually, I think, ran... I don't, I'm not... I've never been to Los Angeles, but I, it, I th- there's three major highways that people always talk about. There's the 405, the 5, and the 110. And I think the... the, the, the uh, what Judge Doom was talking about was the 110 because it runs all the way to Pasadena, yeah. and then he's talking and then he's talking about all that stuff at the end in his big monologue, like it's the it's the most glorious thing in the world, and now every that's what everybody's fighting against. He's talking about strip malls and inexpensive <laughs> motor lodges and billboards as far as the eye can see, and it's like we're all everybody's fighting against that now. We all want everything to be local and. Um, 
you know, not small business. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not as, not as corporatized, but that's just, you know, another element of the movie where it's, you know, you're watching this kid's movie, but then there's these kind of adult themes underneath it. It's not just, you know, Jessica rabbit, but, um, yes. And and, uh, to briefly touch on the trailer, as I always do, I rewatched the original Mm. trailer for this long trailer, three minutes, because they give you almost the entire, I believe the entire opening animated short, with Roger and baby Herman and it goes right into it. And then the voiceover starts. And what I found the most interesting in the voiceover as they're showing clips, they're like, it has heart. It has comedy, uh, friendship, sex, (laughs) violence. I'm like, okay. So, you know, they were, they certainly wanted the kids to come out and drag the families to the theater to go see this new movie that has all of the kids favorite cartoon characters. But and then I, I looked into him like, all right, if this if they're saying sex and violence in the trailer for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, what movies did they put this in front of when in the you know spring of 1988 or end of 1987? And I, I I didn't find those answers, but I did find that their initial test market was uh, like 19 20 year olds. Where they yeah, tested, they it, tested the movie on which it, which I found I that was surprising to me. Yeah, and it went badly. Yeah, it went. It went. It was not well received by right. this intended target audience, and then they went to Robert Zemeckis said, "I'm not changing a thing," and then it's just it's just so strange how that works out. Like there is the movie starts off with a certain budget, and then they have to lowball it <laughs> so they can get it greenlit, and then it goes over budget, and everybody's concerned, and then it has it has pretty bad test screenings, and then it turns out to be a success. So imagine having what, that Zemeckis just creative capital (laughs) well yeah he was off of uh i I think they wanted him the the production team you know mainly spielberg but i think kathleen kennedy was involved too but um they wanted him but the studio was read was hesitant because his only two movies were something called i want to hold your hand which i've never i never even heard of and used cars which i have seen and I think it's very funny, but it was not a box office success. Before but, before what time? Because Back to the Future had been out at this point. Right, but they remember, they had been trying to develop this for years. Oh, I see what you're like 80, and, 1981. I see what yeah, you're saying. Okay. So then when he uh, when he did Romancing the Stone and then uh, Back to the Future, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this guy can do big movies. He can deliver like you know these kind of summer blockbusters, which I don't even know if that term was even really coined then. But... Um, yeah, yeah good point. It, I guess they wanted uh, Terry Gilliam at one point to direct, and he turned it down because he felt like he wasn't up for the technical challenges of doing the of marrying the live action and the animation. And then he, of course, like everyone else who didn't get involved with this, he regretted it. He said it was pure laziness. He goes, "I just I couldn't figure out how to get it done." So I just I, I that's I love how things come together in that way, and I'm glad that this everything in this movie worked out the way it did. Um, I want to into a little bit, maybe not now, because there's other things um, we can definitely talk about right now off the shoot of this topic. But there's certainly an element of I don't feel like this movie is one of those movies where I'm like I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. I think so. I want to get into like other potential actors and that sort of thing. But I was just about the, to go there right now. So. We can, we can. My last point though about the Zemeckis thing is just imagine having that creative capital though to like where this uh, movie studio a major movie studio like frank marshall disney amblin uh touchstone pictures they're like robert 
we got to make some changes to the movie. And he's just like, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll walk. I'm not changing well, my movie. That like, might be, you know, that might be one of those stories that's kind of, you know, it, it's in hindsight. That's how it was. I mean, but I think the reality of it, as I mentioned earlier, was that making any changes to this movie would be like you just have to throw out material. Yeah. And the movie, yeah. And the movie was only... Only clocked in at about nine, but somewhere between ninety-five and a hundred minutes. So they didn't, they didn't really have a lot of material to give up. Yeah, because the the credits are very long in this movie, <laughs> which when you see an hour forty-two, that's a little deceiving because you're not getting that uh, as your runtime. You're probably right; it is probably around an hour and a half. Yeah. Um. And and so so then let's hop into it. Then I know you love this this part of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, for this movie, I really like this. So I think we could spend a nice. I know of time because on, on this. who was the first choice? For, yeah, for, for Eddie Valiant, because Bob Hoskins wasn't exactly a household name at this point. Right, and another thing, real quick about Bob Hoskins. When I found out, like when you're a little kid, you don't think you think when you see an actor on screen, you're like, that's who that person is, right? Uh-huh. So you, I think of Bob Hoskins as the detective. He's 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 kind of cool in that way, and and he's you know. Uh, hardened and whatever and then you hear him and I like when I first heard him with a, a British accent I was like almost like I've, I've been lied to like yeah it blew my mind as a kid that he had a British accent the the, the uh, for some reason the British and Australian actors just they they do this excellent job of nailing down our more bland American accent when the converse is a lot more difficult for American actors. I'm not saying that the, that they can't do it, but it seemed, it was kind of like with, um, if you ever watched House, people who weren't familiar with Hugh Laurie, who never saw Black Adder, right. the, the, the rumor is that Brian Singer was watching audition tapes and he said, I want somebody with just a, a regular American accent and he pointed out Hugh Laurie's audition tape and somebody had to pull him aside and be like, oh, Brian, he's British. Well, it's nice to know Brian Singer was watching some decent material. <laughs> oh, um, um, uh, yeah, Bob Hoskins actually got cast in this. He was in a movie called Mona Lisa, where he played this kind of ex-con who was watching over this gangster's girlfriend. Yeah, and but he was far from the first choice, and, and the only other thing I think that he'd really been well-known for was there's this 1980 British gangster flick called The Long Good Friday. And he plays this British crime boss. He's, he's pretty good in that, too, but he's definitely just cockney as all get-out. Yeah. So, yeah. back to the pertinent material. So, what is your understanding of the Eddie Valiant casting process? Well, they, they wanted Harrison Ford, but he was too expensive. <laughs> That's true. And, you know, he... I don't know that I would have liked Harrison Ford in this role. Um, oh, that's, that's a bold statement for you. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I kind of feel like Eddie Valiant needs to just be his own thing and uh, and not steal the show um, in a way. And I think Hoskins uh, has a subdued way about him that made that work. Harrison Ford would have... I mean, how do you, you can't stop looking at the guy. So, <laughs> um, it, But yeah, he was too expensive. But, you know, 1940s, you know, wearing that hat... Maybe that was too Indiana Jonesy too, you know. De- and- yeah, definitely. Okay, so you're on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, what are other ones you heard? One, one breaks my heart. One uh, of them really breaks my heart. Do you, do you mind if I just so? Yeah, what go, I, go for it. Yeah. So there's a huge list of people who were considered. Yeah. But according, so I think 
if you're going to rank them or whatever based on whatever articles you read from the what's available out there. So Harrison Ford was the first choice, but as you mentioned, he was too expensive. That's the kind of the common um, explanation for why he wasn't was involved. Right. The second was Chevy Chase, which, <laughs> you know, it'd be like, it'd be like, I'm Eddie Valiant and you're not. It's like, cool. Yeah, it's like, right. like Eddie Valiant can't be too cool for the room. That's not his, that's, that's, I, that wouldn't be, it just wouldn't work for me. Right. Yeah. And then uh, I, I, it just makes you forget how big Chevy Chase used to be, dude. Yeah, the fact but, that uh, he, the fact that he turned it down, or said it wasn't interested in the role. Yeah, and uh, and then there was another one. It was uh, Bill Murray. That's which, the one, man. <laughs> I because the way he told the story was that apparently it was described as there's an idiosyncratic process for contacting Bill Murray. If you're interested in casting him in your movie, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that you have to make a, you have to get in touch with a guy with another guy. It's like, there's so many degrees of separation because he won't talk to anybody directly that he doesn't know. I'm not sure what that exactly that means. What do you like? Do you have any idea what that means? Kind of reading between the lines. Um, yeah, Bill Murray, I'm not sure if he's one of those people that has trust issues or whatever. And he has, there, there, there are, in hearing about other movie productions, like there are sometimes a real game of telephone you have to go through to get in touch with somebody. Like, for example, the movie Elf, when I saw like that special on Netflix about how that movie came to be, they had to contact, that know someone who contacted someone who, who contacted Will's assistant, who contacted his other assistant, who sent it to somebody who approves things, his agent who approves things to get Will to even look at it. And that's Will okay. Farrell. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to finish the whole thing because I just had an aneurysm listening to that. <laughs> right. So um, it's, yeah, so imagine what Bill Murray's would be. Well, the, yeah, the point is, you know, it's, it's, it's 1987, or, or I'm sorry, 1988, and this movie takes off like a rocket, and Bill Murray's reading this. He's supposedly, he was, in a, he was somewhere, and he was reading a, a, an article in the newspaper about how they wanted him but they couldn't get a hold of him. And supposedly he screamed out loud and I was picture cause he wanted to be, he said, he's like, if they would have asked me, I would have said yes. Right. But I was picturing him in like one of his roles as being like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> like he's just so aghast that he wasn't, but you're right. I mean, I, I think that that's an interesting alternate casting to think of. And then the other one was Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy supposedly turned it down. Cause I, I... think at that point, because of Beverly Hills cop one and two being so successful, he was kind of he was just always. I don't like Eddie Murphy for the role. No, nah, I don't either. I just rewatched Forty Eight Hours. Man, that movie that movie is rough. Really, it's almost forty years old. Yeah, I mean, it's just there's just the uh, the lack of racial sensitivity. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I've seen that movie. You've never seen Forty Eight Hours? I don't know that I have. It's him and Nick Nolte, right? That was like the first big buddy cop movie of the eighties. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go see it now after that, uh, glory. No, it, it's, but. it's interesting and it's, it's, but it's, it's just like one of these things is like, wow, they would, they could not make this now. Yeah. The Bill Murray thing really upsets me though, because I think he would have been better than Bob Hoskins. And I know, you know, I was just talking about, maybe I'm being hypocritical, hypocritical that Harrison Ford would have stolen the show too much. I, I think Bill Murray could have played it in a way that he didn't, um, steal the spotlight the whole time. And I could see him interacting with these characters in a certain way and bringing his humor to it that maybe would have made it a little a little funnier. Um, because he does, he doesn't take himself too seriously, but at the same time, he he, he does. I don't know. I don't know. Do you are you a Bill Murray fan? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think if he'd taken this role, we might have gotten more of a sneak preview about it of his uh, indie cinema phase, where he does these weird little movies where he plays these sad, odd people as opposed to like the funniest guy in the room. Where he sits on a couch and just doesn't talk for forty five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like those Wes Anderson movies he does or whatever. Ugh, yeah. 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 I mean, but uh, like, just bring back Eddie McCracken. Like, can we do that? Ernie McCracken. I'm sorry. Ernie <laughs> bigger, bigger and McCracken. above the law. All right. Um, yeah. I, I it, it that that's that's the biggest what if if they if they if somebody was able to get Bill Murray on the phone to do this movie and some and he said he would have done it, but who knows if he's telling the truth? You know, that could just be like, oh, it was a. It was such a big success. Yeah, like, and not, not, nothing against Bob Hoskins because I think he did great, and I loved I loved, loved his uh, job doing this movie. But it's not one of those movies, like I said, where it's like you can't imagine anybody but Bob Hoskins playing Eddie Valiant. Right, right. It's yeah. It's not. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't have that kind of I, I guess that iconic. He did. I mean, he did a pretty good job, especially when they made him sing at the end. It was like, who saw that coming? Because he's so dour the whole movie, right? And uh, that's right. another joke that slides right by you when you're a kid. When the when the one cop says to him, he's like, "Are, are you gonna? Are you thinking about changing your name to Jack Daniels?" <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And that was so the main one of the main cops in the movie is uh, Richard Le Parmentier. And he is famous for being the admiral in Star Wars who Vader chokes out. Oh, really? That's him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Getting, getting schooled on the on the bit players here. Little uh, little fun trivia. I'm flexing a little bit there on you, Mike. But um, so what about the other the flip side of the coin? You touched on it a little bit with Christopher Lee, um, but Christopher Lloyd being Judge Doom. Uh, uh, that is a role I. I love Christopher Lloyd so much, so that's a role I wouldn't want someone else to have played. Yeah, the only other name I saw that was really seriously considered was Tim Curry, but supposedly he was too terrifying. I I, I, I can't stand Tim Curry. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, just no respect for him, huh? Zero. You're so you're just that you're just not thinking about what Judge Doom would look like in like in stockings and pumps. I mean, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Tim Curry bothers me for some reason. I don't know if it's his smile or what. Like, but people are, like people who have a hard on for Clue, and I know Christopher Lloyd was in that too, of course. But uh, or uh, it, like, I don't, I don't, it is over so overrated. I'm sorry, it is. Besides it was the a TV su- movie, I know. But besides the sewer scene, it's it's five hours of crap and just an excuse for me to watch John Ritter with a beard. Um, no, but yeah, Christopher Lloyd, man, like, again, he obviously knows Zemeckis, uh, for how, I'm sure that's how he got in in there, uh, for Mm -hmm. having worked on Back to the Future. And Christopher Lloyd is, is is such, is an, uh, he's a, is he never miss? Like, has he ever missed playing a role? Like even, even a small role, um, like the, the bad guy in the Dennis the Menace remake. Like he, he's just always so good, man. Right. Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, I I can't think of any counterexamples, and I I didn't I didn't realize how much he put how much he put into the performance until again I didn't catch the stuff when I was watching it. It was when I read when I was reading about it, like how he you know he didn't blink, but that was in the script. You know that that's a, that's a shortcut to make somebody look evil is to never make them blink because it's it's actually that's a clinical that's a clinical identifier of psychopathy. That's um, uh, that, that's. Anthony Hopkins gets credit for that for his uh, Hannibal Lecter. 
he he purposely did not blink in Silence of the Lambs. But uh, yeah, when I had read that he did this for that, it's funny how Hopkins always gets credit for having done that. Yet here you go, Christopher Lloyd, right here, three years before that, doing it for this movie. And maybe because it's not a, as serious of a villain, it doesn't mm. get that that credit. But well, yeah, 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 it was dictated in the script, and there was a very practical reason for it because he had fake eyeballs. And, yeah, right. Yeah, and, the, you know, yeah. to cover up his flaming red eyes for you know. <laughs> Uh, and then, the, like his his uh, movements being very stiff and kind of exaggerated, like that's how a like the, how, kind of how a cartoon would move. And then some of the other details, like I didn't notice this either, but how was like even when he'd be indoors, like his cape would be billowing, like there was a breeze. <laughs> I didn't catch. Yeah, it's just it was like there were all these clues to tell you that he was a tune, and apparently Christopher Lloyd knew right away he was when he read the script. Because what when it said the thing about him not blinking, he's like, oh, he's a tune, right? Oh, and, wow, yeah. wow. And it and it and supposedly the backstory was that Judge because they don't really ever tell you who Judge Doom was, and supposedly the backstory was he was the hunter who shot Bambi's mom. What? Yeah, that was supposedly the backstory for his tune character. It was the hunter that shot Bambi's mom, and then they, you know, they say at the dialogue he robbed some bank and stole like a hundred zillion simoleons or whatever the imaginary number was in Toontown, and then Eddie and his br- Eddie and Teddy Valiant were pursuing him, and he dropped a piano fifteen stories and killed his brother. Yeah, so the one thing maybe I either they didn't explain it or I didn't pay enough attention to it is why. Other than maybe getting a taste of what being rich can be, um, why did he hate tunes if he was a tune? And why did he want to uh, masquerade as a human and doing all this stuff other than maybe, like I said, is it just because he wanted to be rich and, and powerful? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a really good question because I was thinking about that because it's like they said he stole this ridiculous amount of money from a Toontown bank, yeah. but maybe their money isn't worth what, you know, human money was. Right, or and can so, you spend it there? Or how does it, yeah, how does the currency exchange go? Yeah, but he was a very self-loathing tune. Mm. And uh, I, it was, I just thought that was a weird backstory <laughs> that they never really explained it. And, it, you know, they don't really develop it that well either. That's a very valid question. And it's like, well, what if it was the hunter that shot Bambi's mom? Because he's like, it's just, they're just thinking of the most evil, unseen cartoon. Because I know, I God, how old was I, was I when I saw that movie? But I... I cried like a little bitch when I saw that. It was it, like my mom was like, "Get it together, come on." When when Bambi's mom gets shot, <laughs> cool. Because I was just, you know, I was a little kid. I was just like crying. I, like I don't know why I remember this so vividly. Probably because I was embarrassed in hindsight. I was just like crying and carrying on like a lot of kids did when they saw that happen. Mike, do me a favor. Why don't you lay down on the couch and let's 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 figure out what uh, what happened back then when you watch this movie let's get let's get down to the core of you <laughs> let's let's not let's not we do did. that yeah let's, let's not do that let's not do that but let's i just, i that. i know i i'm sure there are many children who have a, me- a memory of just like bawling their eyes out when they saw bambi's mom get shot there's a scene in this movie that traumatized me oh oh the shoe the shoe mm. played by nancy cartwright bart simpson <laughs> uh, yeah i yeah. I was watch I was watching it with um with the uh with the old lady and she couldn't look at this. She said she hates that scene and she couldn't look at it. You know why? <laughs> it's it's the slowness of it. And 
you know that the shoe is feeling whatever Toon's version of feeling pain and fear is. Mm-hmm. It's just very diabolical. Like, if he had took, taken the shoe and just thrown it in. Mm-hmm. All right. But and the, the shoe and the shoe wasn't snuggling up to him before. Like the uh, shoe just wanted to be his friend. I for... yeah, it's 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 so sad, dude. It it is, and it's. I think like again, it still like affects me because I remember seeing it as a little kid and being really really sad about it. Yeah, it's 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 still a little tough to watch if you. It's just it's like one of the few things in the movie that's like wow this this really I mean it's a kids movie but. This is like a really serious moment because yeah. they, they have to establish that. Yeah, I mean, that that just makes your question all the more interesting because it's like, this. why does this guy hate tunes so much that he figured out that mixing three different solvents will kill them? Yes. Like, and, <laughs> and I mean, you know, you and I both like pro wrestling, or at least we used to. <laughs> Put, putting someone over, how do you put a villain over more than what he does there in that scene? So yeah. uh, I, I think it was a, an important scene. But it's still to me, it's 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 hard to watch. It's mm. almost like Goose's death in Top Gun. You like it, it's those mo- it's those scenes in certain movies that even though you know exactly what's about to happen, you hope it's for some reason something changed and it plays out differently, and it never does for the poor little shoe. Uh, but uh, Nancy Cartwright went on to uh, play Bart Simpson, and it's still to this day, thirty three years later. So I can't good. believe that show's still on the air. I can't. I haven't watched a new Simpsons in twenty years. Yeah, so. I think the last I think the last time I watched one was in two thousand two. Because it was just they were just getting a new celebrity on every week, and that yeah. was the whole gimmick. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so yeah, that scene it certainly tor- tormented me, and and mm. still still does to this day. But uh, good for you know Christopher Lloyd and how he portrayed that. But you know what's funny? One piece of trivia I caught that you probably already knew is I guess the mixture of the dip actually does erase like um, art or uh, ink or whatever, so it actually can erase. Uh, um, drawings and stuff from paper. Yeah, they're uh, all yeah they're all paint thinners. Uh, yeah, turpentine's so, a paint thinner. Acetone also remove. It's also nail polish remover. Right, and then, right, and then, right. Yeah, and then benzene. I'm not the broad. I'm not sure of the broader applications of it, but I mean the benzene ring is the basis for organic chemistry. So, so, so. let me ask you this: Is this another tell in the movie, or do I not understand this the right way? Was the dip toxic to humans too? Well, it would be, but it wouldn't. You know melt them and kill them okay I mean, it, it, but because we see judge doom put on that extra glove does he do that because he's a tune and he would know his his arm would have gotten melted so is it was that a, a giveaway or was that um them saying no this is bad for everybody this no thing. i think i think it was i think it was he, you're correct it was he was that was show that was one of the signs that he was a tune and yeah. hiding as a how about yeah, that as a human. yeah all right and the same thing when it gets kicked over in the bar, when he's trying, and then he like backpedals away from it because oh. he's afraid to even get his, like even let it touch his shoes. Yes, dude, I'm so was stupid. They My can't God. resist the shave and a haircut gag. Right, uh, that is a such a good scene, and he's like just boiling up <laughs> behind behind the walls. But also, I saw I have John Cleese as a potential. Uh, they were looking at which. Well, he had the exact opposite of the Tim Curry problem. They didn't think he was scary enough. Yeah, I feel like he's a little too stiff. Um, mm. Yeah, and I, it would have been weird seeing John Cleese trying to be the tune version at the end there. Christopher Lloyd is so perfectly manic for that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other ones I don't know: Roddy McDowell, Eddie Deason, and Sting. Yeah, I, imagine Sting. 
Would it be like this thing from Dune where he's just like all oiled up and in a loincloth? I, I, yeah, maybe. Well, like, like, does he take breaks from from having tantric sex ever to to, to appear in anything? There's also some goofy piece of trivia where Sting was supposed to have a song in the movie. There was there was an alternate ending where Roger Rabbit dies. He gets killed in the crossfire between the police and everybody else. And which kind of is goofy because they establish this whole time that tunes are a lot harder to hurt, let alone kill. And then right. for some reason they're just going to magically have Roger Rabbit die just so they can play this sad-ass Sting, Sting song at the end. Yeah, which he I'm, ended up putting on an album later. I'm, that's another one of those things. It's like, I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm actually, I, I agree. Yeah, it would have been goofy. Because they, 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 they went through all this trouble to adapt the novel to make Roger Rabbit more of a character and to make his relationship with his wife more... Because in the, in the book, she's not loving at all. She leaves him for another guy. And then in this movie, they kind of do that, but then they, they, they kind of turn it on its head what her motivation was, that she was forced to do it or something. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, there were also a lot of drafts of this script where there were, you know, Judge Doom wasn't going to be the villain in some of them. Like, Baby Herman was going to be the guy pulling all the strings, and then it was going to be Jessica Rabbit. Like, she was going to try to... She was basically, the like, the... That would have been more of a straight-up femme fatale kind of thing, which we've seen so many times. Yeah, and I don't that, think it would have been appropriate for a kid's movie. Yeah, and there's something sweet about the fact that she does love Roger so much, even though he's this, like, ridiculously stupid, like, annoying... Really, really annoying uh, rabbit, and she just oh. loves him to pieces. Okay, so help me out with something because yeah. you know you said the movie held up really well. Yeah, and I think I I agree with you, but I I think when I was saying the thing about how it didn't it it didn't as much for me, it was just because the Roger character was so goddamn annoying. Like yeah, just the scr- there was so much screaming. Just That's all <laughs> true. That is true. Uh, so yeah, Charles Fleischer doing the voice. Um, I don't know. Did they? Was there a, a rundown of other people potentially doing the voice of that role? I know they said Paul Rubens was a stand-in or something like that. Mm. Pee Wee Herman. I didn't but, really. See, you know, it's weird. I'm not. It, none of that's coming back to me, or I didn't see it because I know. I one thing I looked into was because um, Fleischer Studios was kind of a big deal in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. I think they did the original Felix the Cat. So Max Fleischer was like a big deal in animation. And for some reason, Charles Fleischer, you know, they had the same last name. I thought they were related. So it was like, it was a nepotism case. Uh-huh. But I looked into it and I, I guess Charles Fleischer is, you know, he's from DC originally and he went to medical school for a while. He actually wrote a paper on gamma rays or something that you can still look at on Cornell University's uh, website. So I guess he was a pretty smart guy. And then he wow. decided just to become an actor and then this is kind of the path it took him on. He, I, I would say this is probably his fam- most famous thing by far. But he yeah, was in, uh, yeah, he was in. I think he was in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And, he was. Uh, he, I don't even know. He, he played Doctor King in a Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, he he did an uncredited voice in The Great Mouse Detective. He was in the movie Bad Dreams, playing Ron the pharmacist, which is another horror movie. Um, so this was like his, yeah, his first big thing without question. And since then he would re, um, uh, what's the reprise his role as Roger Rabbit and other things or in appearances and stuff. He's 70 now. So who knows? I bet he can't even do the voice anymore. If I had to guess. 
Yeah, um, but I mean, as far as the performance being annoying or whatever, you definitely have a higher tolerance for that stuff when you're a kid. You probably think it's funny, but then you're an adult. It's like, why is this guy screaming all the time? But he, then, yeah, Roger is Roger Rabbit is Jar Jar Binks, man, and he <laughs> he he is. And when you're because this is what it's so funny when I watched Star Wars Episode One. I, I loved it because I was riding the high of the Darth Maul fight and all that stuff. And I, I, I always looked to the good in things, but I remember I do remember admitting that I really thought Jar Jar Binks was really annoying. And That's... I saw because I saw the movie when I was 16. So I watched Roger Rabbit when I was five or six. If I had mm-hmm. watched Robert Rad, Roger Rabbit for the first time when I was 16 or 17, I'd probably be like, I can't deal with this. But because I remember it the way I watched it when I was a kid... It's not as annoying because it ingrained itself in me that I love it. And maybe that's why, like you, you pointed out, the test audiences, the 18, 19-year-olds, didn't, it didn't go over well. Maybe that's why. Yeah, that's a, I would agree with you on that. I didn't really focus test five- or six-year-olds when The Phantom Menace came out. I don't know <laughs> if they like Jar Jar Binks or not. I mean, I don't, it's not like that's a hot take. Like Jar Jar, a lot of people said jar jar Binks ruined star wars and then right but yeah kids who are now you know 25 or whatever and they have larger voices and stuff they say they grew up loving jar jar binks and they were yeah. like four or five when when it came out so there certainly is that element of it but you're right he, he roger rabbit really is really annoying and mm. i don't know if it's the high shrill of the voice the zaniness there's never really scenes where he's not on he like or he like comes down like he, he does have sad moments but it's always like just a ten on uh, like out of ten in terms of his intensity level. Yeah, um, at all times. And they have to play up his stupidity for that. That's the comedy angle. Like yeah, when right. you know he had the handcuff key the whole time, or he could have. You no, know, he could have pulled his hand out of the handcuff at any time he wanted, but he just didn't because he's a fucking idiot. Or or, or or when he, I don't know who takes whiskey and turns into a psychopath, but apparently Roger Rabbit does. Yeah, he, but what? Yeah, so you do it. I know that doesn't happen when I do a shot of bourbon. I don't turn it into like a like a steam whistle. <laughs> yeah, like the last I checked, I don't uh, I don't stir cocaine in my bourbon. So I don't know what kind of reaction that would be, or why that would have that reaction on him. Maybe because the the taste of it is so uh, strong that it's almost like when the cartoons get the hot uh, mm-hmm. steam coming out of their ears. But I thought that was a little weird too. I thought it'd been funnier if he just like passed out. Like and, and he he does for a second and then he goes crazy. But it'd be funny if he just got knocked out. Like if Eddie, anytime Eddie wanted Roger to shut up, he just put a funnel in his mouth and poured bourbon in it and just like knocked him out for like eight hours. <laughs> well, bourbon does burn so good, as bourbon drinkers will tell you. Yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you know Charles Fleischer, whatever you want to say about uh, the Roger Rabbit performance, I mean he was very committed. Like he would. He he would come dressed in a like a rabbit outfit, and he would he would. It's like you know you're not going to be on camera, right? And he'd be like, I don't, and he's like in character as Roger Rabbit, and then he did three or four other voices for the movie, so he was you know a very important part of tying everything together. Yes, um, yeah, and as, he's uh, it's it's certainly a recognizable voice. Like that's one thing you say that about Roger Rabbit. It's it's you don't feel like it's an impression of anything, and. That had to have been a little bit of a challenge because you already have a very famous animated rabbit in Bugs Bunny mm-hmm. uh, to, to overstep that shadow and say, you know, here's this whole new rabbit. This is what he looks like. He wears these suspenders and this is what he sounds like and this is what he's all about. Like Roger Rabbit definitely does have a very distinct sounding voice and you, you, you got to give them credit for establishing that, especially in a movie that also incorporates cameos of all of our favorite 
uh, even our parents and grandparents' favorite animated characters of all time. Mm-hmm. So you got to give him and them uh, credit there for that, even though we both agree it's a really obnoxious character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that I mean that was the toughest part for me because I was you know I'm watching the movie and I'm I'm hitting all the nostalgic beats like I'm remembering all the good little moments and then you know by, you know watching all the all the good performances and just, just some of the visuals and and some of the sight gags like I still I hadn't seen the movie in I don't know how long and I don't want to be hyperbolic but I probably haven't seen the movie in close to 25 years and oh wow okay and I was watching it. And I, I, I just said when he gets when they're going to Toontown and he goes in the in the trunk and he gets the cartoon revolver and I'm like oh I'm like I'm like yeah watch this he's gonna shoot a bullet it's gonna it's gonna hit a bottle with a tomahawk it's really cool and I just I don't know why I remembered that I had seen the movie in so long because but, it's a gun that's why Mike obviously uh, well yeah I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> me, I guess, me, sort of, maybe. Me and, my, me and my gun shit, but I just thought it was cool. Like, and then the bullets were, wouldn't chase Judge Doom around the corner, and then he called him. He's like dumb dumbs, and he throws the gun away. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, why that stuck, but it did for you. It did. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's it, 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 this movie. You know, we both agree. I don't know. In in your rewatch, did you? You said you didn't like it as much as I did. But where does it stand with you? Like, so do you still, are you, is Roger's annoyance a deal breaker for you? Or were you able to enjoy the movie despite him? I still enjoyed watching the movie and kind of taking a little trip down memory lane. But, you know, you definitely don't, I just, I didn't have the same tolerance for the musical numbers and the, and the cartoon, the the really over the top cartoon antics that, you know, being a, you know, near senior citizen i think my arp card's coming next week oh shut up mike well you're only as old as you feel right yes yeah right so do you feel younger or older than charles fleischer no i don't know about the same who's clocking in at a 70 years old yeah um yeah i i I don't know but i i do i gotta say i know i do like uh and by the way kathleen turner sexy Mm -hmm. voice right it's just so sad what ha- what happened with her, like how she went from being, you know, the one of the God, what's the word I'm looking? Just one of the exemplars of of '80s female sexuality, and then she's playing Matt Matthew Perry's dad on Friends. You know, oh right, right. <laughs> she plays, uh, yeah, his his dad, right? Yeah, played his dad after he had a sex change because her voice, I guess. You know, she had that slow, sultry voice, and then all those. I, I, I have to imagine she was a smoker. Because oh, hun- dude, one had to have been, had to have been. Yeah, had to have been. and uh, she, and she also, uh, the sing was done by another actress named Amy Irving, and the name sounds familiar, but I just can't remember what she was in. But she was, she was the one who did the singing when she was doing the. When, I when don't. She... I, I can't pull that name. I can't. I can't even pretend to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could try to look her up. But you want a, a funny bit of trivia that you probably already know is mm-hmm. um, the voice of Betty Boop is the is Aunt Bethany in Christmas Vacation. Oh wow! Yeah. No, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, she had been the voice of Betty Boop and Olive Oil for like decades. Mm-hmm. And then when you li- like, if you listen to her voice in Christmas Vacation, you can like say, "Oh, I can, I can definitely hear Betty Boop in that." Uh, Annie Irving, 
Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, no, no idea. But yeah, mm. um, in terms of other characters, I don't know what else we can talk about. Like you, you said, uh, Charles Fleischer voiced other characters, like he did uh, Benny the Cab. Mm-hmm. Um, and he may have played. He was one... the head weasel, smart he... Okay, okay. I was yeah. Say, yeah. Well, there's another funny thing because there's all these callbacks to different cartoon characters, and one of them was that the weasels were supposed to be a take on the on the seven dwarves, so their names were smartass, psycho, wheezy. Oh, really? I can't remember, what, but there was only five of them because they were already running into all these production uh, snafus, like trying to keep the production on track. So to keep the budget in line, because that would have been more animation. And there was supposed to be something with Judge Doom where he had these kangaroos. It was like, it was supposed to be, the symbolism was supposed to be a kangaroo court. And these kangaroos were going to come out with letters that spelled out, you are guilty. There'd be 12 of them. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, that would have been a lot going on. I mean, especially when you think about the fact that from, you know, the post-production on this movie was 14 months. I mean, can you imagine adding stuff like that? How how much longer would it have taken? Yeah, and um, I don't. Another part of this movie I really do enjoy are the sets. Um, I, there's something about old Hollywood that I really enjoy, and old LA is very attractive to me. The like, not so much like the glitz and glamour thing, but just the sceneries, you know, the old cars, how streets were lit, um, those very. Uh, you know, 1940s narrated, self-narrated detective style type stories and that sort of... I, there's something I, that always, like, attracts me to that look and that feel of that time that time period. And I think that's another reason why I like the movies. I like those old period pieces. Like, if this... Like, if Who Framed Roger Rabbit took place in 1980s, I don't know that I would have even liked the movie. So, um... Yeah. It's it taking place in the 40s with those old cars, with the old car horns and the old bars and... The, the old nightclubs and the whole thing, the whole atmosphere, the smoky atmosphere of, of the setting of the movie, I think is a very underrated um, selling point for it, at least for me. I don't know if uh, maybe other people be like, no, nah, I don't really care about that. But for me, uh, I was drawn in by it, and I like the little nooks and crannies of all the little scenes and sets and stuff. It, well, sooner, it, it seems like most of the time we end up getting into world building. Like, you know, a lot of the reason we like these old movies is because they kind of create a new, a new something new that we haven't seen. Like, and this definitely does that. And plus, it takes you back in time. It does the whole nostalgia thing when the car, when cartoons were really at their peak. So it really makes sense to put it during this time. Oh, that's a good um, point. That's a great point. To put it in 1947, plus it has the whole angle um, about when L.A. did have a very um, expansive and usable and affordable public transportation system, which, as we, we discussed earlier in the program, it's still one of those things that you can't believe it actually happened, but it did, that... To, in order, it's, they had this huge this city that was growing faster than they could imagine... And they want to, these corporate interests wanted to sell cars. So they disbanded, (laughs) they disbanded this public streetcar so they could build highways so people would buy cars. It's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great point. Mm. And I I wonder, I'm not too in tuned with these types of stories. I I do just, I'm attracted to the the look and atmosphere of them. I can't, I'm not going to sit here and say, I know. I can rally off the uh, 10 names of 1940s detective movies. Um, 
But you talk about like the Philip Marlowe movies and like the like Mike Hammer and stuff like that. Sure, sure, like the, yeah. The gum, the gumshoe. The... The, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. That's a great way to put it. The gumshoe movies. Um, so it, it's you know this is certainly a tribute to that and maybe even almost a parody of that in a way. But you, like when I when I try to vacuum out the tunes from the story and like think like all right, so you get this cop. He's down. He's he's beat up and he's like down on life and he's jaded because his brother was killed by this guy but we're not sure who the who killed him and he's not sure if he'll ever know and then it turns out being this guy at the end like we've we've seen that type of story before that whole little twist thing and uh it it's it, in itself it is a can be a good story even if you take out the elements of of roger rabbit and all the silliness and hijinks of the the cartoons and i think that's another um part of it that works is um the whole that whole backstory of, of Eddie and Judge Doom and how that kind of comes to fruition at the end. Uh, I mm. think that's it, it, it's it, it worked. It worked for me where um, it very well could have fell on its face. But for me, it worked. And um, as an adult now, as I think about it, because as a kid, you know, I that that part of the story was not important at all to me. Um, I may have even have forgotten a lot of that, to be honest. And now as an adult, that's part of the stuff I kind of latch on to is because you know we're getting older and you know maybe we're a little more jaded now we're, we're definitely when we were watching this movie when we were five we were roger and now we're watching this movie where we're getting up there um not too up there i know you're beating yourself up about it but um <laughs> uh, we're more definitely more of eddie now where you know you got bills and you got the oh my my wife's giving me a hard time and mm. you know Oh man, you know I got back pain, and like <laughs> you, you slam the door when you get home just because, and you, you definitely relate more to Eddie now watching it as an adult, but still while enjoying it with the memories you have as a kid. Yeah, and and it's also you know you said the thing about how the story beats are kind of familiar, and it's and that and the thing is it, it's I've noticed that, and, and I don't know if anyone else has noticed this too, or you have, but. Uh, it's harder to get into new TV shows and the new movies because it's like I've seen this before. Yes, like like we, it, you get you get to a certain, especially if you're a voracious consumer of pop culture and you, it's like you've seen, it's like I've seen this all before. It's so hard to find something that's unique, and but there's a reason. Like unfortunately, there's a reason that Hollywood keeps rehashing the same stuff over and over and over again is because they think it's going to make money. And they would rather bet on something that made money in the past than maybe try to make something that's a little newer yeah, and it, take a chance on it. That's not as proven financially. I, I agree with you completely in terms of that. Like sometimes I, 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 I don't even start like I don't watch any of those like CSI or SVUs or mm. any of those types of shows because I feel like they're all they're, here's your formula. Your show's just going to be called this and take place in this city there's all the scripts from the the Miami version. You're just going to do this in Dallas. <laughs> yeah, you're something. just going to do this shit in New Orleans, which automatically makes it 20% cooler, supposedly. Right. We're right, going to do exactly. all the same shit, but with jazz funerals. Right, it's, and it's going gonna, gonna to air on Tuesday nights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, that might be... Here's something interesting that we might have to put up on our social media. You know, if you guys, uh, guys want to learn a little bit more about, like, get a little more in tune with the program, we are on Twitter, at Just The Movies. Instagram, just like the movies pod. That's the same for the Facebook page too, right, Johnny? Yes. But um, you know, we always want to spread the word about the program. If you like what we do here, you know, tell somebody about it. Tell a friend, a coworker, your mom, yeah. maybe. If you guys, right. if you guys talk enough, and then even if you don't like the program, you know, just tell people anyway. Right. 
and uh, you know let them chart their own path, so to right. speak. But that like something that might be good to put up on the Twitter account might be something like I, I call it the Netflix challenge. Go on Netflix and try to find a show that's not about investigating murders that you'd be interested in. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> point. It's there's just loaded. it has been this thing where people are fascinated with murder, and it's just like movies, TV shows, documentaries. It's all the same thing. It's like it's just. I feel I I, I think that it, it's like four out of five of the things on Netflix are about murder investigations, whether they're fictional or real, or they're TV shows, or they're documentaries, or they're films. It's yeah. the like I just watched that. Uh, it wasn't on uh, Netflix. It was on HBO Max. It was one of the, um, I think it was a Warner Brothers movie that they streamed, and I, I can't even remember the name of it. It was pretty forgettable, but it had a loaded cast. Denzel Washington was in it with uh, Rami Malek, the guy from Mr. Robot, who played, um, who also played Freddie Mercury, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Jared Leto was in it. And I think Jared Leto got nominated for a Golden Globe or an Oscar or something. And this movie was just all about investigating this cold case murder. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was like, I'm like, it just felt, it's like, man, we're just spinning our wheels with this, huh? Like, we're I, just doing this again. Yeah, I feel like it's also, like, the impact that has on people, it probably makes people think there's way more murderers out there than there are. <laughs> like, honestly, like, you know, I'll see a guy walking outside of my house, and he, like, stops and looks at my house, and I'm like, is that guy a murderer? <laughs> oh, no, wait, I just watched Netflix for six hours. <laughs> So you're right, man. You're right. <laughs> oh, well, um, no. What, what, one thing I will say, you know, it's uh, they they do repeat stories a lot, and I don't remember who said this, but someone said there's only like f- there's only been five stories ever told, and it's just like there are certain stories and uh, tropes and formulas, and like you know the hero's journey, and you know that's one big one um, with Joseph Campbell um, and like Kurosawa's influence and that sort of thing. But um, if as long as you Make it unique, but also just give me characters. You know, again, for me, and this is just for me. I know there's other people out there who are very plot-driven people, but give me characters I'm invested in. Give me characters who names, by the end of the movie, I, I can remember their names, and I don't say Denzel Washington. I say Tom or whatever, who we played. Let me remember your characters, and let me love your characters. Let me care about them. Let me have a vested interest so that if they're in a situation where... Um, something bad could happen i'm worried or let me you know f- be able to feel for a character or find someone funny or even dislike a character so much because they're developed so much even if they're not a bad guy like roger rabbit <laughs> but uh yeah for me it's it's all about having uh good characters that you can be entertained by and enjoy and uh even though you know this there's a lot of animation in this movie and you know i'm not necessarily sitting here saying i'm the hugest bob hoskins fan i thought he was great in hook you know that sort of thing and i haven't really seen a ton of bob hoskins movies i know he plays he's more of a character actor but uh, i enjoyed him and he did a great job and uh of course you know christopher lloyd did a great job too uh but again you know this is just one of those movies and productions that like you said they took a big chance because it was such a big budget but boy did it nail because i think i tried to do the inflation calculator on this thing would have made like 800 million if it came out today wow wow I mean, it's not quite uh, it's not quite Infinity War, but that's still uh, it's still not a nice Infinity War, but it's but it's better. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll talk about that offline if you did like Infinity War. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, well, I 
I didn't want to see, seem like I was coming off as overly negative. I think what I think what you did a good job of kind of parsing out was the fact that it wasn't the movie so much that got to me. It was more just the Roger Rabbit character. Like I just I don't feel like I had the same tolerance yeah. for it. But but then again, some of the cartoon bits had me like I was still I was still like oh that's so funny. Like when they had the portable holes or like yes the the, the hammer that has a spring loaded boxing glove in it like. <laughs> just all that stuff was like, oh man, like that's the kind of stuff that made me remember how much I used to love cartoons. And, it and wasn't... like the, the dad jokes, like the cattle call, and you see like it's a line of actual cows just waiting to be cast in a show. And like, <laughs> like, there, like there's one thing about this movie, there's Easter eggs and stuff all over the place. And we, you know, like you said, we could have gone through the whole list of all the gags and stuff like that. But uh, you brought up some of my favorites too. Like the, the portable hole is a <laughs> good, good pull back, pull man. Cause that's such a funny bit. Yeah. And the, uh, and our rewatch philosophy is very different because I think I like you decided to watch this movie and I probably watch it like the next day and you probably watched it last night. So <laughs> I had to sparse it out. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd finished it um, uh, today. Yeah, earlier this morning. Yeah. Wow. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, what I, one thing I do find funny is that the writers, I don't want to dive too much into them really, but they, you would think that they would have, this would have launched them uh into at least a couple other bigger pictures but it really didn't huh no i i not i I, i'll be honest i that was kind of a gap in my research but i didn't recognize their names and basically for me what they did was they they repurposed um kind of a standard well you know it was an unpublished sequel to chinatown so it's kind of that same la noir type of thing and they just repurposed that and found a way to shoehorn in like fifty or sixty classic cartoon characters. That and... it, it it may be. Is it possible that this script isn't really that good, but everything else around it and all the personalities around it that helped produce this thing uh, made it a success despite the script? Because oh, I'm looking yeah. at their their resume, dude. Their writing team, I guess, Price and Seaman, and <laughs> I know I can't say the word Seaman without laughing. It's just so. F- we're, yeah, we're, that, we that are was real so, mature, Mike. We're real good. we are so fucking immature. It's it's amazing, and I hope we're that way forever. But so anyway, uh, Price and Seaman. Um, they did Doc Hollywood. They wrote that. They wrote Tales from the Crypt. They wrote wrote on Tales from the Crypt, I guess. But then they t- were nominated for Golden Raspberry Awards for worst screenplay in back to back years. For 1999's Wild Wild West and 2000's Jim Carrey, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, and then they did Last Holiday, which I believe is one of those horrible Cameron Diaz romantic comedies. Um, and Shrek the Third. Um, they... Stinkers. So maybe we're on to something here where this movie was a success despite their writing talents. Or well, and it own. all starts with the writing, doesn't it? supposedly supposedly i mean (laughs) you know in my opinion it often does uh but you know maybe when you have a zemeckis backed by a spielberg backed Mm. by kathleen kennedy and frank marshall and distributed by buena vista and uh you know you have touchstone and amblin and uh you have alan silvestri doing music and the all the animators like you said spending more time on their element of it than the actual shooting itself maybe all of those things uh um 
I don't know if it's a crutch, but or, or like they hid they hid the weakness. They well, hid yeah, the weakness the, that is the script. Maybe. Well, the 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 novelty of it at the time was just so. I mean, like I, like I said, I wanted to make sure that I didn't shoot my mouth off about how this was the. It was definitely the first big movie I think of our lifetimes that married live action and animation. Now I know people talk about Mary Poppins, and this might surprise you. I've never seen Mary Poppins. I didn't grow up in a Mary Poppins household. So, yeah. Um, yeah. The first thing I thought of was Dick Van Dyke dancing with the penguins. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, uh, you know, for this movie, it was, it was the world it created, like bringing cartoons together. It, it just kind of trading on the nostalgia that people had for cartoons. I think it, I think that, you know, definitely was, a, you know, it was anchored by very, very good performances by Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd. But the, I think you're right. I mean, it's not like the writing was particularly strong. It's not like there's a whole lot of, you know, it's not. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a goofy plot when you think about it. Like we it, we it were talking we were talking about it before. It's like what is what is this guy's motivation? But and then but to give them a little bit of like not like they needed, but just a little bit of leeway. It's there was there was no way back. There was only forward because it was. We shot the movie ahead of time. We have to do the animation around the the stuff we already shot, and if we're gonna change anything, we just have to we just have to drop it entirely, dude. You know, and you, I know you joked about how you and your brothers quoted the movie a lot, and, and you, but I joke. I mean, you actually did. But look at the line you used to quote. Like, I'm gonna ram him. No, it's just because it's funny. Because it no, do, like, do, do, do it again. You, you want me to do it? Yeah. I'm gonna ram him. <laughs> so it, that's that kind of proves my point like you can't go up and be like oh man give me a quote from uh who framed roger rabbit because it, to me it's not that quotable of a movie yeah i i agree with you because i i was i was i thought you were gonna be like oh rattle off all these other quotes you guys just do it's like it was just like the one and it was yeah. just a it was a stupid situational thing more than anything and we, we usually th- dive into quotes on the on these podcasts of these movies because a lot of the movies that we talk about have very memorable quotes or at mm-hmm. least a handful. And I can't really think of many from Roger Rabbit besides the Jessica Rabbit one I put out before, which is uh, I like it a lot. <clears throat> you know, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Like I do like that line, but like I don't know like any like popular Roger Rabbit quotes. Yeah, not so much. I mean, I I have my little moments that I remember, like when Judge Doom reveals himself to be a two, and he's like, "Remember me, Eddie?" Right. <laughs> when I killed your brother. <laughs> right. His right. voice just gets higher and higher and higher. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And after he sucks the gas to fill himself up, which was it helium? I don't even know if it was, but yeah, maybe that would make sense. I didn't, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really catch uh, what 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 the what the. Uh, He's like filling his suit out with, yeah, whatever it was, yeah. But, yeah, like, Roger Rabbit, like, I can't think of any, like, popular quotes of his, like, to be like, oh, yeah, man, I remember that line. Oh, it's so funny, like, you know, every other animated character, like, Bugs Bugs Bunny is like, what's up, Doc? And uh, Suffering Succotash for Celeste the Cat. But, um, you know, Roger Rabbit is just like the stuttering, please. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. And I'm sure if that came out today, you know, it would get canceled for making fun of stutters or something. But, um but uh, thank God for you know, I guess 1988 in that regard. But and no, you know, I'm not making fun of people with stutters, believe me. But anyway, um, yeah, it's not a quotable movie, and maybe that again again lends itself to proof that maybe it's not the strongest of uh, scripts. Yeah, and and I, I was joking around too. Like I know we like to talk about the 
you know, the cultural impact of movies, like the, you know, what lasting effect they might have on the landscape. But I think every movie that they've tried to make after this, where they try to marry, like nothing was as successful. I don't know if they were all, I, I, I'll i be honest, I don't know all the movies off the top of my head or if they were bombs, but the first couple I think of, Space Jam, Cool World, and then they did that Looney Tunes movie with Brendan Fraser, which was almost like, that was kind of like the beginning of the end for him. Yeah, yeah career-wise, yeah. right. um, despite his involvement in the Mummy franchise, and now he's on that show Doom Patrol, but, yeah. he's a, but he does voice work. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think, it's like, it's, it's this movie was such a, it's such an outlier, I guess, because you had this, you had this concept of doing, you know, having imaginary characters be real and they're interacting with people and it creates this you know you have this nostalgic world and you know you were mentioning the thing about how it's set in the 40s and they had that like that bar that he hangs out in that's right by the that's right by the train so it gets rattled all over the place like that's a very distinctive yes uh, it's very distinctive set and then when they actually go to toontown because they could they could go through the wall uh at the acme factory i mean all that stuff like the movie is a it's a spectacle but it seems like it was a spectacle that they that nobody was ever to really recapture that magic because you know even more so than the NFL, the Hollywood Hollywood's a copycat league. Like if oh a, if, yeah, if a movie works, it's like every studio is going to try to do their version of it if they're not doing one already. I agree, and mm. I know that for a very long time, since 1991, there was flirtations with the idea of making a sequel to this taking place in the following decade or something like that. Kind of like following the Indiana Jones thing. As Harrison Ford got older, they tried to put him in situations where his character would be in a different era. Um, and they um, had a script. I know that at one point they were trying to bring a young J.J. Abrams in to write for it. Oh. Um, and it's over the years, Robert Zemeckis keeps getting asked about it because... It's one of those elephant in the room things for his career where, you know, he did sequels to Back to the Future and, you know, he, he has had a lot of other successes, not necessarily franchises, um, but he uh, always talks about it and he has no problem talking about it. But he says, you know, yeah, we were trying to develop it. And they're, you know, as recently as like two years ago, they talked about it, there was still a script and they were going to have to do a situation where if they revisited Eddie Valiant, it would have to be him as a ghost, an animated oh. version of him or something like that. But it's just one of those things that they, like they said, and movie making is weird in that way. But like, yeah, we had a great script. It's just it doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. And uh, I don't know that it may, I think it's too far removed now. Like if they did it in the early '90s or even mid '90s or even late '90s, I think they could have swung it. But uh, 33 years, I don't know that you capture recapture the magic. And I, my fear would be that they would try too hard to implement modern technology with visual effects that it would lose um that magic because they really don't make 2d animated animation anymore and i i've recently thought about that i'm like they should really because i was looking at that lot that that trilogy so to speak of knockouts that disney had in the early 90s which is you know aladdin beauty and the beast and the lion king just three knockout movies uh i think they should bring back some 2d stuff like I get they're doing the live action live action remakes of all those old classics and doing the Pixar thing, which I do love, uh, enjoy a lot. Aren't they but, doing another Space Jam with LeBron yeah, James? LeBron James, yeah, and it, it, I I don't think they're doing two D animation with that. They're definitely doing some kind of like you know. Oh, okay. I didn't even know that part. Yeah, yeah. like the, the old school two D animation. I think it's something they they got to bring back. And if they were to do Roger Rabbit, they'd have to go back to the way they did that. And I don't know if they would. So. Even though they flirted for years and decades of making a follow-up, it's probably not going to happen. 
And I don't know that it needs to. You know? Well, we've talked about on this program the the dangers of the too late comedy sequel. Yes. And and this would be that to the nth degree. And I didn't hear a thing about an actual sequel. The thing I read, I'm not saying yours is wrong, but I read the thing. There was going to be a prequel where Roger Rabbit was in World War II and... They were using him. At, they, well, they were using um, Jessica Krupnik, who became his <laughs> wife. They were using her for like Nazi propaganda or something. Oh my god! Yeah, and then he was gonna rescue her, and that's it was gonna be like their oh. whole love story. And I guess, and a big part of the reason that never happened is because Steven Steven Spielberg, I guess his thought process was, I made Schindler's List. I can't do this now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that that well, and that much time had already passed. Like he, I think Schindler's List came out in ninety four, ninety three or ninety four. Yeah, ninety three. So think. so they were talking about doing this movie after that. Yeah, and then and then I guess Spielberg's thought process was something along the lines of that he didn't want to satirize Nazis after making them so serious and you know one right. of his big, you know, big important movies. So. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's like you said. It's it's one of those movies that um, uh, is isolated and frozen in time in a way, and and just came out at the right place, right time, and uh, a very massive hit. And I think there is obviously always going to be a lore with movie studios to revisit something and and milk it as much as you possibly can, especially for something that had that much of a profit. You know yeah. that you know that like we said that came out today. We're looking at eight hundred million dollars, and that's just a massive haul. Uh, and who knows if we even see movies make a billion dollars again after the pandemic when theaters come back? But um, it, I almost like the fact that they didn't make a sequel to Roger Rabbit because you could see, you know, big animated classics, just animated classics that have had sequels that were kind of like cheap and cheesy, like the sequel to Aladdin was direct to video, and they they didn't even get. Robin Williams to do the genie. It was uh, the guy, the guy who plays Homer Simpson, uh, and you know they did uh, this uh, Lion King two, Simba's Pride and stuff. It's like, just like there's a reason why when they talk about the Lion King and Aladdin, they don't say the Aladdin trilogy. It's like no, we did Aladdin. Yeah, that's the yeah. You can still find it on Disney Plus, but let's divert your attention away from that. And that would be the situation if they made a Roger Rabbit too. Like I think it was so good. And uh, so, like, set, like it's just so new and fresh, like you said. That you c- can you bring make a sequel to that and still make it feel exciting and new and that sort of thing? And I, I guess the answer was no. And and I think too the practical considerations were the fact that um, Disney essentially fucked over Warner Brothers. Like they they oh we we'll let you use our characters sometime down the road and then oh right. So there's a practical concern too, and it's also. Um, the fact that this movie was probably just such a pain in the ass to make that it it might not have been one of those things where you could learn anything from it. It's like, look, if you're going to have great animation, you know, and that was one person, you know, you, we talked about the production team and the director, but one person we did not mention was Richard Williams, who was a name I didn't know before I was reading up about this movie, but he was a giant in the animation field, and he was really the glue that held this whole project together because without him i mean there's no he he was always pushing for to make the animation like he he set up like a like a uh, kind of a 
a few basic rules to push the limits of what they could do on animation because sure it's it, it's it's probably a lot easier to, and again I'm a little over my skis talking about the technical aspects of filmmaking but it's probably going to be easier to integrate an animated component with a live action component if the camera at angles are standard and static and but he didn't want any of that he wanted the the camera to be dynamic and 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 that was something that he worked on uh uh, with Zemeckis on to make the animation more cutting edge and for the time I mean now when you look at it it's like it's it's you know it's 32 33 years old so it's like okay well that's not the best thing I've ever seen but it's still really really especially at it that is. time it is it was like mind-blowing and yes. now it's still yeah. impressive it's just not you know we're all like we've been saying we're all a little jaded now we're all just picking everything apart spoiled yeah yeah so but yeah, it, it, the movie to me, just kind of my my closing remarks about it were I I didn't even think about this like I don't I didn't really prepare this whole trajectory, but it just is kind of interesting how it just seems like all these things aligned and it was kind of a moonshot and they couldn't really duplicate it. Yeah, and, ne- and it seems like there were efforts to do it, but it just never really came to fruition. <clears throat> yeah, and you know the thing about having a good director like Robert Zemeckis and you bring up Williams and that's a great point because we, we, we would have been fools had we not. Um, because, and I agree with you. I did not know him by name in any way, shape or form before preparing for this. So me and Mike aren't here to pretend like we're snobs in that regard. Mm. Well, part of this podcast is us finding out new cool things about these movies. We like too, besides, you know, taking the dip down um, nostalgia lane, mm. but he, I read that he, was very maybe the archetype of what how Rogers look was because he wanted his anatomy and attire to be broken up by all the different studio influences. So his face was meant to resemble a Looney Tunes character, his torso a Disney character, his overalls were supposed to be a nod to Goofy, his gloves to Mickey Mouse, and his bow tie to Porky Pig. So they like wanted Roger Rabbit to almost be a tribute to those characters that came before him. Um, and it's subtle enough where people aren't like, oh, why is he dressed like Goofy? No, he's not. He has maybe the suspenders, but also he has this bow tie that's a Porky Pig thing and that sort of thing. But, you know, <clears throat> and you got to respect that um, you know, appreciation for what came before you. So, um, But having a director like Zemeckis, you know, because directors have final say in how the effects look. And they can literally say, I, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to people who worked on video games who literally just gut things and say, like, whatever you're just working on for six months, can't use it. Gone. <laughs> and it's just like, I can't imagine being that type of um, creator or worker that you put all this work in and all the director has to do is say, like, not good. We got you to gotta redo that or something. And But to Zemex's credit, this movie does look good because he is a good director and he probably worked really well and hands-on with those departments to make sure there was cohesiveness between what he they shot first like you brought up a great point they did all that physical shooting first so that the animators could have the best opportunity to be successful in doing their job after the fact because another great point that you brought up before is that if it didn't work they would have to just scrap it completely because of the situation yeah they uh the the, the best example of that is they the scene that I don't know if people would have liked it. You said you wouldn't have. Where Eddie Valiant turns into a tune when they go to Toontown. That was seven weeks of work they just threw out. That's it wasn't amazing. Gonna work. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would like to see it to see what he looked like. 
But for the movie, I don't like. I wouldn't have liked that the, element. The implications make no sense. You were you were you were spot on about that. Yeah, I'm like so humans can turn into tunes, and what does that mean then? Does that mean <laughs> tunes can turn into humans? Then what was the point of Judge Doom pretending to be a human? Like it would have just messed mucked the yeah. whole thing up, and you just kind of want to see that he embraces tunes again, and they ride off literally into the sunset and all that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it, so. You gave your final thoughts, or do you have anything else to put a bow on? No, uh, no, I, I, um, I, I just, I kind of, I, I, I was having a hard time thinking about where to go on this one because it, it was a pretty, it's a pretty challenging movie when you're an adult and you, you knew you, like I knew I liked it so much when I was a kid, right? And, and I, it, it's still an enjoyable movie. It was still fun to watch. It was just that some of the stuff that's there to cater to the core audience, which is children. Yeah, it just does. That's the that's the part that doesn't hold up well for me. But I I did enjoy running it down again, and I know we kind of bagged on the on the writing a little bit, but I think, you know, I guess it 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 was a, it was a good enough story to propel everything forward. And um, again, I, I I know sometimes people don't like to deviate too far from the source material, but I think in this case, if they tried to do a pretty faithful adaptation to who censored Roger Rabbit. I don't think it would have kind of captured lightning in a bottle like this movie did. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. I think um, making it more of a, the who framed Roger um, was a better approach and better angle. So uh, from, the, from the story uh, standpoint, I think that was the right move. Mm. Now, whose decision that was, who knows? I don't know mm. that that's necessarily the writers. It could be the producers or... Um, uh, director saying like this is the direction we want to go in with this but yeah either way it worked i mean major success we're still t- people still talking about that movie to this day people still bring it up and watch it and uh like you said you you covered you know what it may have had as far as an impact of, of future films and that sort of thing but at the very least it's uh it, it is certainly a classic it is certainly something that stands on its own, and uh, I, I'm actually excited to one day show it to to Johnny and see what he thinks about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have any kids, and that's not really part of the plan, but um, I mean, this was a movie that if I had, like, you know, I have a nephew that I, that I you know, haven't seen in a while because of the pandemic, but I mean, this is a movie that, like, I would like to show him. Yeah, And then, like, right. you know, if I'm around when he grows up, it's like we could talk about <laughs> some of the stuff that I didn't catch when I was a kid. Like the that wacky that wacky uh, that crazy freeway idea that could only be cooked up by a tune. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, we like to round it out, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, hit us up on our social media accounts, like Mike so eloquently put it before. Mm-hmm. We are on Twitter at Just the Movies, just like the Movies Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we are going to try to be more active on there. You know, we we are quite busy, and this is certainly a joy of ours. But uh, the more you interact with us on there, the more we're going to be interacting and posting things up there. And every once in a while, when we think of things that uh, are social media. Um, appropriate or, or that would work for social media we'll certainly post them based on our episodes and uh, sometimes we do drop some nuggets like well we're, we talked about this like you and I talked about uh, or me talking about the, the I posted the picture of the toxic guy coming up to uh, what's his name in Robocop <laughs> but um, make sure you do subscribe to our podcast you can do that everywhere podcasts are found for the most part the big ones you know you have Apple Podcasts uh, Spotify Amazon Music Podbean if we're not on a podcast app let us know if you have a preferred one we'll make sure we get on there for you but we should be on the big ones uh, and tell like tell a friend yeah spread the word without a doubt right Mike they should tell the people exactly exactly yeah. 
So, Mike, I uh, this is our tradition now. We mm-hmm. don't go into these episodes with an understanding of what the next person is going to pick. So I'm just going to throw it at you. Uh, let's throw cer- ceremony to the wind. And what are we doing on the next episode of Just Like I'm, Movies? I'm going to make a minor change to the program. And I'm going to ask you. I have two, two movies in mind. And how you answer this simple yes or no question is going to determine which one we do. Should I cover my face so you don't tell my expression? No, no, no. No, it's okay. fine. Okay. Um, do you think it's finally time we do a Mel Gibson movie? <laughs> uh, I'm yeah, cool I know either which, way. I know which one you're going to pick, so yeah. All right. Lethal Weapon it is. There it is. <laughs> I knew I knew that was coming. Yeah. All right. Cool, man. Yeah, Lethal Weapon. Was that 87? I believe so. But All right, uh, so we're, we're sticking in the area. I kind of I teased it a little bit by mentioning the Buddy Cop movie with 48 Hours. There, that's, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Le- Le- Lethal Weapon. Uh, that's a movie, believe it or not, Mike, I haven't seen that in a very long time. So, No, I, uh, I believe it. I'm excited to, to revisit that. I, uh, I, think, I think it's available on Hulu. Okay. If you, if you have Hulu, uh, everybody. I'll check so, that out. Um, I thought it'd be on HBO Max, but it's not. So. When was the last time? Is this one of those you've, you watch a lot? Um, hard? I mean, not recently, but I'm, I've probably seen the original Lethal Weapon like 50 times. Um, all right. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Again, spread the word of the podcast. Share it with a friend. Copy a link. Send it to a text uh, to all your family members, all your friends, your coworkers. Let's build this thing together and keep uh, having a good time talking about the movies. But until next time, be kind, rewind, relax, and we will see you around. I'm going to ramble. Give me a break.